Okay, hi and welcome back to another Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 35 and today I have Dr. Emma Stevenson from Northumbria University. Welcome Emma. Hello Lauren, hi. Brilliant. So this is take two. We just failed miserably uh, in trying to record uh, first time round. So um, we'll go back to, to square one on this. So perhaps you could tell us just a little bit more about yourself and what you're up to at Northumbria University? Yeah, no problem. Um, so I'm currently a reader in sport and exercise nutrition uh, up at Northumbria. Um, I also work within the Brain Performance and Nutrition Research Centre here. So um, my work obviously focuses around the effects of nutrition on um, performance, uh, metabolism uh, in particular. So um, we're doing a range of things at the moment, but still very much focused um, on that area. Excellent. Yeah, I've, I've heard you lecture a number of times. You, you've come down uh, to lecture for us on the ISSN diploma, and um, you did several lectures. Yeah. One was on um, milk and all the wonders yeah. of milk um, which I uh, for performance uh, and recovery and so on. So that's definitely got to be another podcast. But today... What I wanted to get into is another area of expertise that you have, which I believe you actually got your PhD in the area of glycemic index, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Perfect. Long time ago now, but yes, I know, yes. I know. Well, time, time flies <laughs> when you're having fun, as, uh, yes, or yeah. so I'm told. So one of the lectures you, you gave, which I kind of sort of want to loosely use as a, as a guide to today's podcast, would be... Um, Sort of in the areas of, of nutritional interventions that that affect uh, performance and, and body composition with um, and weight management that sort of thing, particularly um, as it relates to glycemic index. Because I know you not only did you do your PhD in in glycemic index related areas years and years and years and years ago, uh, not that long, not that long ago, no, 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 no. recently ish, um, quote ish. Um, but the the you've been putting out some papers recently on this topic, not only as it relates to an area that I find fascinating, which is how this stuff influences fat oxidation, but um, yeah. but also some wellness stuff like diabetes and, and so on. So uh, maybe we'll we'll try and get a mix of all this in. But let's sort of lay a foundation to this this conversation we're going to have just to make sure that we're absolutely clear what we mean by glycemic index, because there are terms that fly out there, glycemic index, glycemic load. Um, Other people see GI, but of course that could be something totally different like gastrointestinal or whatever. So let's let's just lay the foundations on glycemic index and and then we can move on from there. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're right, GI often gets... uh... Uh, mixed up with gastrointestinal issues so when I say GI today I'm obviously talking about glycemic index Um, but the the glycemic index is is not a new tool at all and and it was firstly um, established to to help diabetics to um, select the appropriate types of carbohydrates to consume Mm. Um, so basically any food that contains carbohydrate can be given a, a GI value 
Um, and it's basically a measure of kind of postprandial blood glucose response uh, when you consume that carbohydrate. So the GI is, is a, um, a value that's given usually relative to glucose. So glucose is given a value of 100. So the, the glycemic response when you consume 50 grams of glucose. Um, and then foods are compared to that. Um, so when you consume a, a portion of, of that food that contains 50 grams of carbohydrate, what does the blood glucose response look like? in comparison to when you consume glucose. Um, but interestingly, sometimes they use white bread as an index as well, as a kind of reference. Um, so sometimes you will see that it's, it's glucose is, is the reference value of 100, and sometimes it can be white bread as, as the reference value. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just thinking, because um, I want to get into this a bit more, um, and it's my awful sense of humor that's kicking in here and it could be due to a new baby induced sleep deprivation <laughs> but it's a very popular area this which I, I definitely want to explore because one is led to believe that anything consumed um, that leads to um, this this glycemic response can lead to insulin disorders and so on and so forth but of course if if that was truly the case then every pigeon in London <laughs> would be would be <laughs> having some serious metabolic disorders because they're fed white bread by white millions bread. of, of so people they? and that isn't necessarily the case so anyway i'm sorry to disturb you there but um, yeah i don't have anything with any working pigeons i'm afraid no so. oh, dear, oh dear oh dear well anyway the this idea of of how food can influence this sort of postprandial glycemic you know response um, yeah. of course is is what we read and that's what's presented in in the papers because in the real world we don't eat um uh carbohydrates we eat food or we eat meals and, and yeah. that sort of leads me into into wondering um if you could just sort of lead a bit into the glycemic load aspect of this yeah so um the glycemic load obviously takes into account um the amount of carbohydrate you're consuming as well so um, with glycemic index, as I said, it, it's based on a 50 gram portion, whereas glycemic load much more looks at, at the, the, the whole, I guess, the whole package, the whole meal. Um, so what is the glycemic response relative to the amount of carbohydrate that's actually being consumed? And I think this is one of the reasons why I got into to working in this area for my PhD was that a lot of the, the early studies um, that, that were done in using glycemic index as a tool in sports nutrition, very much focused on the provision of a single food. Um, and you know some of the work by Diane Thomas, it was back in 1991, um, where they're providing athletes with a bowl of lentils as a low GI meal um, and a bowl of mashed potato as, as a high GI meal, and then looking at the performance effects um, following those meals. And this is just not what athletes do. And uh, I guess that's why I wanted to, to move forward in this area and look at how we could apply GI to meals that athletes would realistically consume um, before exercise um, and, and just uh, trying to make it more applicable um, so that people could relate to it. Brilliant. I think yeah, the, the GI, is a, it's a complex uh, it sounds simple, but it is a complex um, thing to understand. Um, and, you know, just right from the start, I'll say there's lots of things that will influence the GI of foods. Um, so things like how, how foods are cooked, what they're um, co-ingested with, 
um, the whole cooking and cooling process of foods um, will alter the GI. Um, how ripe a fruit is will alter the GI. So although it, say it sounds quite simple, um, the application into real life practices is, is more complex, definitely. Yes, well that's my, yeah, I mean that's my whole thing about context, of course, is yeah. there's so much there's so much to that. I, it's fascinating even for you to raise, you know, the fact that uh, heating and cooling can influence the GI. And, 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 and in that, you realise just how damn difficult this thing would be. And yet, people yeah. do put an awful lot of faith into this. Um, yeah. You know, they're like, oh, I, you know, I don't know, I'm not going to eat that because it's a high GI food. But of course, it's never that simple. In, in It's not, no. 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 Um, so whilst we're talking about the complexities of GI and GI load and, and all that, um, also, am I right in thinking there's going to be a, a different GI response to people in uh, differing levels of health? Of course, you've got people that have got healthy insulin regulation. There's people with not so healthy insulin and, and active and inactive and so on, right? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um even active people when you've exercised previously obviously that'll change your response and that's some of the studies that we published um earlier on where you can show different glycemic response to a meal when it's consumed before exercise or after exercise um so so yeah there's lots of different things to consider um you know you, and you you've touched on it a little bit but in terms of how um insulin sensitive somebody is or insulin resistant at the other end of the scale um, will obviously impact and some of the, the latest work that we've done in this area has been around um, type 1 diabetics so how does um, the GI influence their glycemic control mm. um, and, and in particular we've looked at that post-exercise because that's a, a big area of concern for people with type 1 diabetes is that there's lots of beneficial effects of exercise um, for them, but their glycemic control post-exercise can be can be difficult to manage. Uh, and there's there's a fear of um, hyper and hypoglycemic incidents. Um, and so we've looked at how you can use the GI of meals, and and really it's just simply exchanging one type of carbohydrate in a meal for another type of carbohydrate, um, and and seeing how that influences things like their um, glycemic control post-exercise and also we've looked at some um, inflammatory cytokine markers as well um, so that's recently been published in diabetes care brilliant yeah and I, uh, we're definitely going to get into some of that in a bit um, we we keep talking about carbohydrates of course which is clearly an important you know focus when we're talking about glycemic index but it's not the only thing that affects um uh, uh, the insulin situation and, and the glycemic response in general, is it? Yeah, no, of course, because protein has an influence on um, on the insulin response, so consuming protein will increase the insulin response. Um, when you consume uh, fat with a meal, that tends to lower the glycemic response um, because it, it prolongs the, the absorption and digestion um, rates. And so that's for some people, it can become quite confusing when you look at um, the GI of certain foods that often high fat foods will have a low GI mm. um, just because of the fat content in that food. Um, and so again, from a kind of a, a, a public health awareness um, 
it, it can be quite difficult sometimes to use this as a tool to recommend certain types of foods because somebody in the, from the general public could say, well, uh, so a fruit, say watermelon, has a very high GI, but chocolate has a low GI. So should I consume chocolate instead of a piece of fruit? And um, so, yeah, it can get confusing, certainly. Definitely eat the chocolate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that it is important that we all ask ourselves, you know, what, what it is we're trying to do with our training or with our eating. I constantly refer to us using, and this is as practitioners, whether we're sports nutritionists or S&C coaches, sports scientists, or even just, you know, the, the, the sort of the well-educated individuals looking at our own health and nutrition is, is we need to start thinking about what's going on the mechanisms behind this in order to understand how to make the decisions you know that that ultimately will lead us to whatever our goals are and that of course is why education is is key to this because um, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing and which is why this has become such a big issue you know people are constantly yeah. talking about oh carbs are bad for everyone and yeah you know yeah. and, and it's not so simple so let's segue then a little bit into a couple of well if, if we'll attempt three different angles here we've got the 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 impact that this stuff can have on performance yeah the impact that this can have on body composition and there may be a relationship to those two and of course wellness so i mean why you know, I guess, but let's 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 get into body composition first because that's going to be the popular one, which has multiple sort of c contributions to health and performance in itself. So, what's the relevance to glycemic index and body composition? Um, well, it's mostly around the fact that it's been shown a number of times, um, some studies that, that, that we've done um, as part of my PhD and my postdoc work, and others have shown that. When you consume um, a low GI carbohydrate before exercise, um, it causes less less of a suppression of fat metabolism during exercise. So, as we know, ideally, if you want to burn fat um, during exercise, probably the best thing that you can do is to do fasted exercise, mm. um, and and that will burn utilize that the the most fat, but. Lots of people don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, a lot of people prefer to consume carbohydrates or something before an exercise session. Um, so, so we did some uh, studies looking at very simply changing the types of carbohydrates, so um, exchanging high GI carbohydrates for lower GI carbohydrates in a breakfast meal. Um, and, and the study that I did, we used female exercises. Um, they had the breakfast meal. They then had a three-hour uh, rest period and then did a, a 60 minute exercise session and, and we looked at metabolism during that exercise session um, and, and we found like others have to say that um, when they exercise they utilized more fat um, during exercise um, and we've, we've repeated this in sedentary females so we, we used females that um, had no prior exercise training uh, they were normal weight but mm. didn't exercise um, and, and looked at walking exercise and again we showed that they would burn more fat during the walking exercise when they had the low GI breakfast three hours before. So for lots of people it might be a useful tool to manipulate the amount of, of fat that's being burned during exercise 
but also helping with them feeling good during exercise as well. Um, and I think what's one of the issues that a lot of people don't feel like they can exercise for a long period of time um, when they're fasted. Yeah, it's, see, this is an interesting one because depending on how you interpret that information, I, I, I think one can miss one can misunderstand some of the things that we're talking about here because although although uh, and this is from my understanding of it so please correct me if I'm wrong but if we're to do fasted exercise and we know that that increases fat oxidation and there are various benefits as you suggested and we'll talk about performance in a minute but the the you know the, at the end of the day the the primary substrate that's being burned is is going to be more likely to be fat than anything else so that there's an obvious benefit there however that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to lose a ton of body fat if you still don't correct the total amount of energy coming in through the day because i have heard people talking about this and go oh well i'm doing fasted exercise but of course it had no impact at all on me losing weight and the problem there is yeah that's because you ate more food later Uh, (laughs) and so i i did a podcast recently on the neurobiology of this stuff with um, Stephen Guirnay who's in, a, um, um, a, 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 in the US who specializes in this sort of thing and of course there are though some benefits to fasted training also on two areas it might have a positive impact on appetite um, but also if you're not going to eat breakfast beforehand you're not getting those calories in um, so yes, you're going to eat afterwards, but you may, at the end of the day, have eaten less calories. So there could be an advantage to that, just by virtue of the fact that um, you know your 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 whole sort of energy balance things works out. Plus, you've increased um, uh, fat oxidation. But obviously, there are others who are going to say, yeah, but that's useless uh, for performance and various other things, which of course will will hit. But I guess what I'm I'm blabbing on here, but I guess what I'm saying is that improving fat oxidation doesn't necessarily translate in a 24-hour period to um, losing a bunch of body fat, or does it? Um, Well, no, I mean, it's a very good point. And these studies that I'm talking about are very cute. We're obviously looking at, you know, over a few hours. Mm. Um, And so the long-term implications are less clear, I must say, in this. Um, and obviously it takes long-term implications to result in change in, in or loss of body fat. Um, I mean, we did a study recently that um, Javier Gonzalez was the lead author on, and we looked at you know, consuming breakfast or not consuming breakfast, so irrespective of, of any GI um, implications, but just the fact that if you, if you exercise fasted, we actually found that you're in a, a less positive fat balance over the rest of the day so there is implications possibly there that it does change how what you consume or how you um how you manage or how you uh, how how your body responds to food um in the post-exercise period um when the studies that we we did we did actually yeah are you still there i can hear you've Uh, we looked at their right Sorry, just, we just broke up there, so I just want to bring you back to that point again. Yeah, can you hear me now? Is that okay. all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Wonders so of technology, saying, yeah. <laughs> um, so I was just saying that we, um, in the study where we looked at the sedentary females, we did actually look at their appetite post-exercise, and they did have 
um, suppressed appetite in the low GI trial, mm. uh, but we didn't we didn't look at their actual food intake. So we we looked at um, we asked them how they felt, um, how full they felt, how satisfied they felt, and they reported to feel fuller. But of course, that isn't a direct um, implication on what they're going to then consume. Um, so yeah, we do have to be careful about making any kind of long-term implications from these studies. Um, and there are so many factors, particularly if somebody is exercising for weight loss, if they're dieting and exercising, then obviously there's loads of different things to consider there. And it's not as straightforward as consuming a low GI breakfast and then exercising will help you lose weight. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the, the only reason I raised that, Emma, was is just that I know that and you know that. But often people will comment, often you know, in, in the national press or on social media or whatever, um, that faster training improves fat burning. And of course, that just totally takes your mind down this glorious path of, mm-hmm. of, of just annihilating body fat from simply training on an empty stomach. And of course, you know, it, it's not as simple as that. It, it's like I say, this is knowledge that you add to your toolbox. But yeah. it, there are metabolic health benefits of course to to fasted training and i know we've discussed like with james morton we got very much into this whole business of of fasted state training and you know how that can improve um not just fat oxidation but mitochondrial biogenesis and i mean there's huge benefits you can actually improve insulin sensitivity um and all that sort of thing so there are huge benefits to this and and of course we've only scratched the surface um and yeah i mean one thing that i was really surprised about though is when we published the the gonzalez study where we showed that that um, exercising before breakfast may be beneficial in terms of fat balance Mm. the the biggest um I guess critique that I was getting from the from the general public on um, kind of websites and things that were that were um, when the study had been picked up by the media and things was that people were saying how ridiculous to recommend that people should exercise fasted and I was really surprised that there was such negativity from the general public about that as a tool and that exercising fasted was they were suggesting was dangerous and that uh, we shouldn't be recommending it as a strategy um, so it's interesting that the kind of perception of that as well from from the public um, and again as you say it's, it just comes down to education that you know it is all right to do that um, if you know and I guess the GI stuff comes in that if people do feel very uncomfortable about exercising fasted and feel like they need to consume something that maybe, uh, you know, the evidence would suggest a low GI snack or low GI based breakfast would be a reasonable alternative. Yeah, I, I, actually, that's a good point. I mean, it doesn't have to be a case of not eating anything. You could have a, um, a high protein snack uh, is certainly one thing that I've read. And of course, lots of people are now talking about sort of high protein high fat low low carb which i certainly don't want to get too much into because that's a a very uh it's a whole different one yeah you know the idea that eating fat helps you burn more fat and all that but um so to get get us back on point then um clearly and you've demonstrated this in your research then that 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 this glycemic index can influence um fat oxidation and and also and satiety itself i mean we haven't 
discussed satiety so much. Do you want to just quickly discuss this impact on satiety? Yeah, well, I mean, it's been shown in um, non-exercise related studies as well. So, um, you know, particularly in, in children, there's been studies that have shown that a low GI breakfast um, is more satiating and um, and it's also it's been linked a lot with cognition as well in children, which is a whole other area again, but that kind of this maintenance of, of a kind of a blood glucose across a longer period of time may be related to um, improvements in satiety. Um, again, it's still a very controversial area. Um, you know, low GI foods tend to be higher in fiber, so is it just because that they have more fiber that they're more satiating and not necessarily anything to do with the glycemic response as such? Um, but there's certainly a reasonable amount of evidence to suggest that that low GI foods are more satiating than high GI. Um, but I'd say it's still fairly controversial. And again, it comes down to um, the real life application and what you're consuming the carbohydrates with um, and how much you're consuming and all these sorts of things that, that will add to it. But um, to say we, we've shown it a few times that participants have felt less hungry but as I, as I pointed out earlier that does not necessarily relate to reduced energy intake and that's what's really important that we can look at um, you know visual analog scales to assess how people feel mm. but that doesn't necessarily relate to a change in, in behavior and intake because appetite and en energy intake are very very complex oh, yeah. um, and I guess in in sort of public health terms, if you're looking at exercise and how people feel after exercise, um, which is what you've just kind of touched on, is that there's this huge reward aspect of, of exercise um, in people who are exercising possibly for weight loss and that they feel that they've done something really good and you know deserve a little treat possibly and, and overcompensate for the exercise that they've just done. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's very very complex area um, and it's not just as simple as does a sustained glucose response result in you know reduced appetite yeah unfortunately uh, I've mentioned this a lot throughout the series uh, of podcasts that we do have this tendency to talk about things very black and white everything's in isolation yeah. you know and this obviously is one of those topics that people do talk about as being very black and white which we clearly made a case for it being far more complex <laughs> yeah um so we've discussed elements of how this might influence um body composition from a weight management perspective uh and also not just that it increases fat oxidation but also um has a positive impact on reducing satiety potentially so at the end, you know overall energy balance might come down just I as think, a result so yeah. i think i think that's really a really cool strategy but moving on from regular folk to performance yeah. tell, tell us about the influence of gi on performance then Hi, you still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Well, it's weird. I said this off off air. We've, I get really amazing um, quality of podcasts with people um, sort of five, six thousand miles away. But when we're within the UK, it's diabolical. <laughs> anyway, uh, that, okay. that's that's a side. So GI and performance. Yeah, let's get into that. So tell yeah. us more about GI okay. and performance. Yeah. So um, 
Okay, so I guess there's, there's two main areas to, to talk about here is, um, so there's the pre-exercise feeding element, which I've already talked about in terms of metabolism. Um, and then there's the recovery aspect as well within sports nutrition. And they're, they're the two big areas that GI kind of was, was being focused on. Um, so I'll start with pre-exercise because we've already talked about that a little bit. But um, I guess the, the rationale was really based on what I've already described, that when you consume low GI uh, carbohydrates before exercise, um, you can get a higher rate of fat metabolism and then possibly sparing muscle glycogen for, for later in exercise and therefore improving endurance capacity. Um, and the first few studies, the study by Diane Thomas that I, I mentioned, it was one of the very first in this area, was showing that, you know, you're getting something like 20 minute improvements in endurance capacity um, when people were consuming the low GI carbohydrates before exercise compared to high GI. In terms of performance, so looking at, say, time trial performance, I think the results are a bit less clear. And there's a real mix out there in the literature of, of studies that have shown improvements in, in performance following a low GI pre-exercise meal and others that have not shown any difference uh, to, a, to a high GI meal. Um, so, again, it, it's complex. <laughs> um, you know, the, the studies that have looked at intermittent exercise, so looking at pre-exercise meal and, and um, intermittent exercise performance, again, the majority have shown no real performance improvement um, when carbohydrates the when carbohydrates are consumed before exercise if they're low GI compared to high GI. Mm. And I think one of the big things to consider here, and a study that Louise Burke did actually back in 1998, was that Actually, if you consume carbohydrate during exercise, any effect of the pre-exercise intake um, is, is lost. So if, if athletes are exercising for a long period of time where the improvement or the higher fat metabolism might be beneficial in terms of performance, if they're actually taking on carbohydrate during that exercise time, it's masking any effect of that um, low GI uh, carbohydrate intake before exercise anyway yeah you know the thing that fascinates me the most about all this is um, for us that are into sports science or strength and conditioning we're well aware of you know periodization of training but mm -hmm. this idea that we should now think about periodizing our our nutrition is a is a much more recent idea um, yeah. And yes, there have been terms out there like nutrient timing and various other things. And I think nutritional periodization is a slightly better um, idea because these, th these nutritional interventions do help to, to optimize um, you know, the, the, the training stress. I mean, we, we all know that it's the exercise or the training is what drives the adaptations, but the, um, but the nutrition itself can have a can really have quite a profound impact on where all this goes yeah um particularly yeah. at the elite athlete level where little things make a difference you know th this is this is big stuff so for us it's a great tool to have in our toolbox so in terms of periodization um this stuff is important to know and the reason why i'm mentioning this is because we've discussed how nutrition factors such as GI can improve fat oxidation but we also like you said you know there might be scenarios where you don't want to do faster training because you don't necessarily want 
um, foul oxidation to be the main outcome of that training session because yeah. you're after maybe more strength and more power. But that doesn't that doesn't mean that there's one right way and one wrong way. It is it is how you intend to periodize this and yeah. thinking about that and saying, well, what what's the outcome of this training session or what are we trying to achieve this week, this month, this season? Are we off season? Are we race season? And knowing that fact and knowing things such as GI of certain foods allows us to tailor our nutritional choices to help with those outcomes, right? Yeah, certainly. And I, even just to on a daily basis, um, your things like the timing of the exercise session are so important in terms of then how you um, you prescribe your pre-exercise nutrition. And I was just talking to my students about this this morning because when you look at guidelines, the very general sports nutrition guidelines that kind of say you need to eat a, a high um, high carbohydrate breakfast three to four hours before an exercise session, that kind of thing. It should be predominantly low GI. The reality of that is that, you know, people don't always have three to four hours before a training session to, to consume a high carbohydrate meal for exercising in the morning. That's not practical. Um, and so there are so many other aspects to consider. Um, you know, I've worked with a lot of athletes that would just say there is no way they can eat anything before, um, yeah. particularly before competition, because yeah. they just can't stomach it. And so, um, you know, it's difficult to come up with these recommendations for pre-exercise carbohydrate intake because it comes down to very, very specifics, um, you know, that about the, the event, the timing of the event, the individual. And as you say, what they're trying to get out of that event is so important, whether it's a training session or it's competition. Um, sure. So there's, yeah, there's so much to, to consider there. Um, but I think, you know, generally in terms of the, the GI and performance um, data, I think the, the majority of the, the, the studies that are out there kind of suggest that you know, if you're going to do prolonged exercise, carbohydrate a couple of hours before is better than none. Um, and actually, I don't know if the, the, the composition of that carbohydrate, you know, if it's a balanced type meal, then that's what's important. And, and the actual GI of the specific carbohydrates may be less important. Yeah, uh, I think that's come out in the recovery uh, literature as well. Is that traditionally um, high GI carbohydrates were promoted as kind of recovery um, carbohydrates, and obviously the science is there to say if you can increase blood glucose, increase insulin concentrations in that in that kind of thirty to sixty minutes post exercise, that will facilitate muscle glycogen resynthesis. Yeah. Um, and you know, and we know that, and that's been shown over and over again. And a high GI carbohydrate in that thirty to sixty minutes after exercise will certainly facilitate glycogen resynthesis. But the question then is, when when is the next exercise session, and how important is that very quick recovery? Um, and so the studies that have looked at that are very much focused on the kind of three hour, three to four hour recovery period. So if somebody's doing two sessions in close proximity, then yes, that's very important. Um, but the studies that have looked at a longer recovery time, so comparing high GI carbs to low GI over, say, a 24-hour recovery period, have shown that actually there's no difference between the, the types of carbohydrates. And as long as you're getting sufficient carbohydrates, sufficient energy to recover well, the type of carbohydrate doesn't seem to be um, important. 
Yeah. Again, it's, it's coming down to individual situations. What are they trying to achieve? What's the timing of the exercise and how long have, have you got kind of either side of each exercise session to, to prepare for that? Yeah, I, I'm pleased you mentioned that because uh, very recently actually on Twitter, I, uh, you know, the, uh, that, that highly peer-reviewed medium <laughs> on social media, you constantly hear people still talking about, yeah, I'm going to do my workout and then I'm going to have my, my, uh, my protein with my uh, high glycemic da-da-da to increase you know, the, in, the, the highly anabolic insulin response and so on. And of course, for those people, they're probably just doing some sort of like chest workout that they're only going to do once a week. Um, and you, you know, you made a very important point: is this stuff is only really relevant if you're going to use the same muscles within a relatively short period, um, you know. And that that brings us obviously back to that whole periodization issue or nutrient timing issue. Yeah. Um, so I just for, wanted to. Protein, yeah. As I was say, for protein, obviously that is really important around the timing and and the types of proteins. But I think in terms of we're talking about carbohydrate intake, mm. um, the over a longer period of time it really doesn't matter we've shown that with endurance capacity we've shown it with um kind of doing intermittent exercise so doing a 90 minute intermittent exercise session one day recover with high or low gi diets and then do the same exercise session 90 minutes the next day with a performance measure no difference at all between the diets so in terms of carbohydrate if recovery time is long enough, it really doesn't matter. But protein, you know, there is is, is a bit of a different story. Absolutely, yeah. We've done we've done uh, many podcasts on that, and actually, I have uh, the very next podcast is with um, Prof. Stu Phillips. Um, so we'll we'll be sure to get into that one. Yeah. So um, we've talked about body composition. We've talked about performance, um, and I know we actually could spend a lot longer on performance, but I think it, it's quite clear that. From a, as long as you're you're thinking about periodization of this stuff and you know why you're doing what you're doing, GI certainly has its uses um, um, in performance. But let's briefly touch upon wellness then, um, since um, athletes are human beings first, and yeah. all you know this is wellness and metabolic health and so on is something that affects. Um, any of us potentially. So, what what are Definitely. your what are your findings in in that area? Um, you know, I think this is a really really important point because we kind of get lost a little bit in the the sports nutrition guidelines, and, and as you say, you're thinking about the overall wellness of these individuals. So, you know, the fact that I guess you can prescribe high carbohydrate diets that aren't going to be causing big, big glucose and insulin uh, increases over and over again. Um, and so we've, we've looked at this in um, in type 1 diabetes. Um, I know there is there's stuff that has been published out there um, on, on plenty on type 2. Um, so that's why this whole concept was actually devised in the first place. But the fact that you shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't really be recommending people to be consuming carbohydrates that are causing these big glucose and insulin increases repeatedly over a day um, and I guess that's where carbohydrates get a lot of their bad name but there are plenty of low glycemic response carbohydrates that can be consumed to get the same kind of benefits as, as we've talked about um, but not causing those big insulin uh, increases over and over again. Sure so for those that are 
I mean, you know, I think there's a great deal of anxiety that people are having now about carbohydrates in general, um, which we don't really need to get into. But it's not really, it's not really a question of whether it's a, a, a carbohydrate or not. What you're saying is the GI and the timing of that ingestion of carbohydrate is potentially a bigger issue with with with, with metabolic health. Is is that kind of right or? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't believe that people should cut out carbohydrates from their diet totally, but I think that it, it is about selecting appropriate types of carbohydrates. Um, you know, and often it's just, I've said this already, that it's just an exchange of one type of carbohydrate from another. So instead of eating, it's really simple, instead of eating white bread, then looking at kind of grainy, whole grain, wholemeal type breads instead, where you get a reduced glycemic response. Um different types of potatoes, the way potatoes are cooked. Um, you know, there's there's lots of ways that you can quite simply exchange types of carbohydrates within the diet. And I think if people are exercising, then it's timing that carbohydrate intake around the exercise, depending on what their, I guess, what their main outcomes of that exercise are. Absolutely. So I, I mentioned earlier that we, we kind of scratched the surface on this I mean, A, just in our conversation here on this stuff, particularly as it relates to performance. I mean, I know there's a lot of research on uh, insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity and glycemic ins- uh, responses and so on in the sort of the more medical literature. But where where do you feel the research is going or should be going as it relates to sort of performance and body composition specifically? In terms of GI or in terms yeah, of just... GI, GI, yeah, I think GI, GI, since that's kind of what we're talking about here. Um, I'm put, not sure about the, the research. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think it's more about the education to, to individuals about types of carbohydrates and the effects that they have. Mm. Um, as you say, there's a lot of stuff out there that people saying that carbohydrates are, you know, these evil things in the diet and I must say that I've spent a lot of my time recently working when I'm working as a nutritionist so obviously I've got my university job but I also have worked as a performance nutritionist for a number of years and I spend more time persuading athletes that they need to consume some carbohydrate in their diet Um, and this is professional athletes who are training on a daily basis um, that getting them to understand that they do have a carbohydrate requirement to support their daily training and performance. So I, I don't think it's necessarily the the research in performance. I think it's just getting athletes to um, and practitioners, coaches, whoever, to understand that there is a place for carbohydrates in sports nutrition, um, but it's the type and, as, as we keep saying, the timing around exercise that, yeah. um, that are important. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And uh, we've... We have talked about this with others, um, uh, particularly I did a big one on this whole topic with um, carbohydrates, that is, with James Morton. And, and okay. I, I think, and I've said this on multiple podcasts, the biggest problem we've got when we're talking about protein, fats, carbohydrates, and whether it's high or low or moderate, is, is people's understanding of what those words actually mean. Because my idea of of low carbohydrate is not zero carbohydrate 
Um, yeah. Whereas some people will take that to meaning I'm on a low carb diet and they will go out of their way to avoid any possible traces of carbohydrates, which yeah. is not yeah. what we're talking exactly. about. And, and that's what yeah. happens on Twitter or people's blogs or whatever. And that's what our athletes read. And I, like you, I, you know, I spend a lot of time working with athletes and I'm, I'm constantly amused by what well, I'm frustrated by the fact that I've, I'm putting so much effort into learning the rocket science but actually I'm there just trying to get them to eat a vegetable or or to yeah. not worry about having a little bit of carb you know it's not going to be a problem in fact it's important you know and, and there's things we haven't discussed of course the importance of carbohydrates to immune function or to um the populations of bacteria in our guts, which um, mm-hmm. is incredibly influential to our health, which which I do have an expert coming on to talk about. So, they're, they're, yeah. they're, you know, they're, they're not just substrates; they're not just fuels. They're they're also, um, you know, they, they also are, 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 are playing a role in our overall health and wellness, which is the most important thing yeah. for us. You know, yeah. So, um, listen, that's. That's us. We, 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 we've, we've run out of time. Um, I've, I've enjoyed very much this, and I appreciate you coming on to the podcast to, to, to discuss this. Um, I know that you're also heavily involved in teaching. Um, you mentioned your students this morning. So, um, uh, you know, what, if folks want to learn more about what's happening up at Northumbria and uh, your various educational programs, um, how can they find out more? Um, well, website or contact me. Yeah, so we we've, we've got a sport, exercise, and nutrition undergraduate program, um, which you know basically rolls around a lot of these things that we're talking about. So um, we've got a, we've got an applied sport and exercise science program, um, which covers all different aspects of sports science. But our sport, exercise, nutrition program obviously has the, the big focus on the application of nutrition to sport and exercise. Um, so yeah, people are interested and more than happy to, to chat about that. It's no problem at all. Brilliant. Thank you. And, and of course, um, you can look up um, the various research papers that Emma has uh, led or been involved with. Um, the, 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 uh, quite a bit of what we discussed comes, I think, from a series of papers that you've got that have just come out, but also um, I referred to a paper you did, which is in the Journal of Nutrition, which is yeah. um, fat oxidation during exercise and satiety uh, during recovery. And that's when was that? 2009. Yeah, 2009. Yeah, wow. It was, yeah. Cool. Time flies. Yeah. Um, so there you go so th- thank you once again Emma um, that oh, well, thank us, you for the invitation my, my pleasure so that brings us to the end of this uh, Good Performance We Do Science podcast you can learn more about this podcast um, on uh, guruperformance.com you can of course uh, benefit from Emma's expertise also uh, by attending the ISSN diploma where Emma has lectured for us a number of times and, and hopefully we'll get her back again hopefully um, yeah. brilliant stuff um, and of course I am also the program leader now at Middlesex University for the MSc in sports nutrition there where you can can, uh, can also uh, participate but all details at guruperformance.com I of course am Laurel Bannock and look forward to bringing another podcast to you all very soon